let me try it or yeah, yeah. okay because uh, i think i'll be leaving after sometimes just just today <laughs> okay my son my son has a, a, a tennis tournament at 8 so i need to drop him off okay all right so uh, so today we are uh, uh, you know discussing shloka 1 29 and 30 the three shlokas from uh, chapter 1 so like the format what we always follow anybody can start off and kind of you know share some of their insights and aha moments and then we can trigger off the discussions so anyone is there any uh, significance to the fact that uh, uh, it starts with the gita starts with dhritarashtra vacha I mean, I'm I'm just curious. I don't know if that is, but I'm just curious if that is. Uh, maybe I can say my interpretation. Okay, please. Yeah. Uh, Dhritarashtra was a blindfolded king. So basically, it starts with how we are blindfolded, right? So ignorance. Okay. Ignorance yeah. and and not seeing the that's, real that's self. That's interesting. that's interesting okay yeah cool thank you there is also uh, one small snippet by swami c in that he says so dhritarashtra is like the mind that is born blind itself and is also married to gandhari which is the intellect which voluntarily oh, becomes yeah. blind blind and then tries to go along with whatever the mind says and our point is eventually the the message of gita um the other thing is also the the first word being dharma last word being mama it's mama dharma my and since it's first person possessive uh hence the the message that like that it is not not just like a theoretical thing but it is practical for everyone of us to take it and then live through it in our life and apply it for our practical life thank you thank you krishna when i read that you know i thought of you only krishna too because <laughs> <laughs> we discussed that so many times yep yep it never gets boring <laughs> no no <laughs> krishna always gets to that mind right whether it is krishna one or krishna two <laughs> so that there, there is two more like for the people who are new there are two nice very interpretations of the gita the way it is laid out so the first word is dharmakshetre dha and then the last is matir mama that is how sanjaya ends it so the last letter is ma so if you take dhar and ma then it becomes dharma but if you take the first word dharma and then the last word mama then it becomes mama dharma my dharma what is my dharma that is the message of gita it's like nice to different ways of interpreting how the entire gita you can just compress it either with the first letter and last letter or the first word and the last word Hey Rajesh, I was just wondering uh, if you could also record those chantings because I don't think so. I'll remember the way she chanted after some some time. Okay, okay. That will be helpful. I'll ask. We can repeat at home if we can. Sure. Thank I'll... you. So uh, I had a question um, actually, because is there a way of figuring out in in the last I think this last one the second one was it number twenty nine? Um, let me find where it is. 
In, yeah, actually, in uh, Shloka 30, so the, the break came in the middle of Hastat Bhattachayava. And is there a mm-hmm. way of figuring out where the yeah, break should come? Yeah, there is, there is the, a way of figuring it out. And, uh, you know, we have learned that. And she will, uh, you know, Preeti will teach us that particular thing in terms of where to break it. So that it's easier for us to break it into two parts. Today, she didn't want to get into the complications. So we just left it at yeah. that. Okay. So when you're saying it, the whole thing, you got to say it in a particular way. When you break it into, you know, uh, two, and two half sentences, then you got to say it in a different way. There's a slight, you know, uh, Sanskrit rules, which we are also learning. So we'll do that. And, and, and of course, you got to plan when to breathe in between them. <laughs> Absolutely. There are a lot of musicians in this group who can teach us that. No problem. <laughs> Going back to the first shloka, yeah. He's very doubtful of the outcome of that war, right? That's the very reason why he's even asking that question. That what's happening? He knows that uh, Kauravas are like bigger in the army, but Krishna is on Pandava's side. So something related to sometimes we know the outcome, yet we ask hope for the other alternative, (laughs) even in our lives. Yeah. Very true. Actually, from what I read, uh, this is done only on the 10th day of the war. So the war has already started. Initially, Dhritarashtra does not want to know anything. And Vedavyasa appears and says, I'll give you the power to see if you want to see the battle. And then Dhritarashtra says, no, no, I have lived all my life blind. I don't want to see this anymore. I will rather just face the consequences as it is. And hence, Sanjaya gets all the vision and tirelessness to be able to see anything, hear anything, and then be able to fully remember and uh, narrate it to Dhritarashtra. So 10 days, Dhritarashtra just holds and then does not want to know anything about the war. But then he finally hears the news that Bhishma has fallen on the 10th day. And then he could not contain himself and then says, okay, now tell me everything what happened from the war. And then Sanjaya starts from the beginning. And there is a little bit of things that, that like the message that will be hidden in the way Sanjaya narrates and the way his empathy lies. Uh, kind of tending to push Dhritarashtra. Hey, if anybody in this whole story, you are the only person who can stop the war. It is still not late. You can stop the war. And he will be pushing that message very slowly and constantly through his uh, shlokas. So I had a question on that point, uh, Krishna and others. Uh, see, to me, Ved Vyasji wrote this, right? Uh, so what Sanjay is saying is essentially what Ved Vyasji wants us to know. So it's not Sanjay saying, it is Ved Vyasji saying, right? Yep. Okay. Yep. So so then, then you could argue that, I mean, I'm sorry, but I'm just being too analytical about it. But then it is just that subtly Ved Vyasji is trying to um, tell the audience that this is how it played out. And all that subtlety that Sanjay is passing on is just the poetic license he has to convey that to us right yes okay that's like one perfect interpretation to to have yeah but, but we, it is considered as itihas it is not a i mean we we still argue about it whether it's a fiction or a or a fact but it is suppose it, it comes in the category of itihas so it did happen he's just recollecting it as well 
well i'm not debating whether it happened or not happened i'm just saying what we are reading is essentially coming from ved vyas ji who is telling us to uh, yeah, you know, it, do this it depends right whether it really happened or he's just telling it out as a fictional thing so what you were in saying was more indicating that it's a fiction he can say whatever he wants right but that's not the case and and to extend that logic it goes to the same thing about bhagavad gita to did really krishna say it or did vedavyasa want us to think that this is the teaching so that is where where we go with the belief that this really happened and krishna did preaches this thing and vedavyasa is the instrument who is giving us this whole uh, itihas so krishna is also an incarnation of vishnu of krishna yep 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 so this is basically uh, you know written by vedvyasa i think and everybody is like a movie character you know and each character playing their role and at the background written by somebody in the form of a story where there are different characters in the story who are doing certain roles and you know playing certain parts in carrying the story forward that is the way i see it Krishna, it's a great uh, insight that you gave that it's happened on tenth day, as in he started reciting it on the tenth day. I never understood the reason for a past tense there. What did the sons of Pandu do? You know, if it's in life, it should be more of what's happening there. I think that that the past tense is that that clarifies. And secondly, I think the distinction between when he says my people and sons of Pandu. here is here itself they are establishing how much we associate ourselves to the body mind complex or the ego he he owns his people and anybody else who are not his sons are totally somebody outside that that's how yeah. it is yeah chamla that is beautiful how you said it like how we are just in present looking only for our own ego and not looking out uh, and then receiving from others to actually look inwards right so it's just amazing how he started just another thing from this shloka was that uh, this war was uh, fought in kurukshetra which is a dharma kshetra um, so uh, dhritarash was still hoping that either his sons or the pandavas uh, would come to sense and you know something will change their mind and the war could have been stopped so that's why he wants to know what really happened did anybody did yudhishthir come up and say let's not fight this war etc so so because this is the place where lots of rishis had done uh, you know a lot of tapas and austerity so it had very positive vibrations so there was a little hope in his mind that you know one of the side would change the mind Yeah, I also read that that the hope was also on the selfish side. That since Yudhishthira is the Dharma Raj, so he he will retreat to all yes. the Dharma, yeah. and yeah. his sons uh, and his side will win without yeah. uh, fighting. Right. So um, uh, I also read an interpretation that this this is kind of showing the Tamoguna uh, in Dhritarashtra. So he embodies. Yeah. that his character embodies the tamoguna so yeah. actually one of the things that uh, you know when i read read this thing back one of the things that really struck me was as to how uh, you know 
Dhritarashtra suddenly divided the entire world into two two things, right? You know, there was just one world, and maybe when let's say Krishna looked at it, maybe he did not see any difference. But maybe when when Dhritarashtra saw it, he suddenly categorized, okay, my people and the rest of the world. So I think the same thing happens to us also in our own life, right? Because when we start looking at everything. we say oh this is mine and this is not mine then suddenly that division automatically creates the rest of the thoughts that go on to as to how we interact with that part of the world which is not mine and that's uh, i think it's a very powerful thing from this first first sentence itself in my in my understanding here beautifully said uh, beautifully said very beautifully said see um just to add to that adesh uh, uh, one of the thing is there is a tinge of um, so dhritarashtra knows that this is wrong right i mean so there is that underlying uh, sense that he knows what is happening is wrong uh, and and that comes through because that shows in the tension also um, that i want to know because i'm 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 because i there is that undercurrent of uh, um, uh, that undercurrent so there is that tension what is uh, i'm curious to now know what's happening because um it may not be good right so i think he has a sense that it what might follow may not be good uh, f- from looking at it from his perspective that his sons may die or uh, you know th- there is that feeling so in many ways often times we know uh, when we uh, do something that may not be in accordance with the universal value values we may know it even during the time um and there is something that might we might miss that signal but there is probably that signal that's coming in deep inside if we hear if we listen to it it might be there um even so both the... i'm picking up on what ashish said and what kishore just said uh, <laughs> you know uh there is <coughs> there is an inherent inertia in the status quo right i mean that's that's what so so this rush is not particularly worried he's got curiosity about what's happening in the battle in the battlefield but he's not doesn't doesn't express worry like arjuna is expressing later on in the other two shlokas that we'll study uh so he doesn't have that level of distress and he he takes it for granted that he'll win or his side will win sun will win um there's a there's an it, i mean i'm 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 maybe i'm reading too much into it but there's an inertia in his uh in his thinking in in like or is it helplessness uh could it be helplessness because his son is not going to listen to him he knows that no but he doesn't express anywhere uh, at least in the story a, a will to stop it so if it is helplessness uh and if 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 a parent feels that their child is in harm's way they'll they won't sit still even if they are in- incapacitated that's exactly is. that's exactly was dhritarashtra's problem he could never ever stop his son from doing anything wrong but did he did he try did he want did he want to stop him did he try to stop him so the way that uh, you know i understood that thing that thing was that dhritarashtra never had the guts to stop his son because he had that attachment so strong that you know that overpowered whatever sense of righteousness that he is supposed to have imparted to his son or his son well but but as a parent you you know if 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 i know my my 
child is, if I feel that my child is coming in harm's way, uh, it's just a natural instinct to try and stop them. That's also because uh, Duryodhan actually represents ego and he also represents false hope that, yes, you're right, that uh, he always presented as if he's, you know, he can't be conquered. That's how Duryodhan presented himself. So, yes, you're right. Dhritarash did have a little bit of overconfidence that uh, Duryodhan will, you know, get through this as well. So, uh, and... Yeah, and I also the reason I say that is that, you know, Ashish used the word, I think I don't know whether he meant it that way, but Thomas, the, 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 this, this inertia that we have about, you know, what is the most likely outcome of a particular action. Um, that is the Thomasic energy yeah. that drives us towards <laughs> that, right? Yeah, and that's where I was getting to that Duryodhan actually did say that, oh, our army is much bigger. So he, he did, you know, while speaking to his parents, he almost did say, oh, our army is bigger and we'll win this war, you know. In, uh, and I think um, for Duryodhana, he was always, uh, for, not Duryodhana, for Dhritarashtra, he actually got a sense of what was happening only through the eyes of others. So whatever they portrayed or the way they made it sound is what he believed it to be or he preferred to believe it to be. Yeah, preferred to believe it to be. Perfect. Yeah, <laughs> like he just um, was happy that he could somehow put this on to someone else. That is what they told me. And hence he absolved himself of taking ownership of actual facts, maybe, in a sense. Um, but in the, in the book, uh, Swami Chinmanan's um, interpretation, he says, he seems to indicate that um, there is, you know, he's conscious of, Yes, the stuff that his his sons have been doing and how it's not right, um, but yet you know, so so he doubts what the the outcome of the war will be. But I think he he wants obviously his sons to win. Yeah, but he's aware that you know they've they've done wrong. He yeah. he just doesn't want to uh, own it you know publicly sort of. And even though, you know, Duryodhana was uh, exuding confidence and in the later shlokas, I mean, from second to, I think, seventh, you know, he was completely, you know, I mean, because I, I think Swamiji nicely puts it saying that when your motives are not pure, you know, you actually have self-doubts, right? I mean, so he knew that he had uh, all the Maharatis on his side and, you know, bigger, much bigger uh, contingents and so on. But he was, I mean, his confidence vanished at that point of time. After and he saw the, To the extent that, the, you know... Yeah, to the extent that you know, he even uh, uh, berated his teacher actually by calling him. <laughs> yes, you know? yes. actually, um, yeah. it explains in page fifteen, uh, Holy Gita. Whatever you're talking about, yeah. um, I was when Duryodhana saw the Pandava forces arrayed for battle, though they were less in number than his own forces, yet the tyrant felt his self-confidence draining away. As a child would run into his parents in fright, so too Duryodhana, unsettled in his mind, runs to his teacher, Dronacharya. When our motives are impure and our cause unjust, however well-equipped we may be, our mind should necessarily feel restless and agitated. It happens to yeah. almost 
all of us <laughs> yeah. yeah but the, but the question but the question is you know maybe it's it's a question that probably you'll have to think about it okay how do you how does one determine whether a motive is just or not just that's the whole point right yeah think about it think about it this way you know it it, it maybe you know the mahabharata could be a story or whatever and that's not what what's the whole point about debate the point is how do we contextualize it in in our own in our own life you know when we have to take a decision how do we know whether we are doing something right not right what what basis we determine that i thought that was the greater good is the basis and and, and and the intention i would say right um it is hard i uh, sorry vidya i i don't mean to interrupt but um, um I, th- there are multiple voices right if you were to even listen there are probably multiple voices there's probably a voice that says go ahead do it and then there's a prob- uh, another voice that says maybe not right so how do you know which is that voice that's that's coming the that's from the intellect versus uh, what is um, what is coming from the emotional mind right and and to be able to distinguish between them and make the right choice so this is happening in real time as well so um, how do you do that is uh, is that is the tough part vivek you raised your hand yeah i mean so that's the whole that's the essential question right <clears throat> that it is about uh, the frame of reference we work in at any given point in time uh, it, it's where free will you know whether we have free will in the moment or not uh, so our today what i hold as right or wrong or my my assessment of what is success or failure is quite different from what it was you know a few years back um so that is where the spiritual uh, learning kicks in um it, it's it's all about what we what we assess as right wrong or success failure in that point in time and that's where conflict arises as well and i think when everybody is at a different point in their lives or are viewing it from their perspective it's about everyone seeing the same seeing it the same way um my perspective would be uh, you know it is a continuous improvement right so at one moment you might be thinking this is the right thing but when you go back to scriptures you, you read whether it's gita or even a line of ramayana or anything you think for that moment or that day what you have to do and you get insights so the more you read the scriptures every day you will get the insight to do the right thing and that's the only way i have seen at least in my experiences uh, that i'm able to move from what i thought that was right but not really to what is probably right so it's a continuous um, in a journey and continuous improvement process yeah i agree with you vidya so it's basically getting a sense of what your dharma is i think this is where it begins to know you know asking the questions what my dharma is what is the right thing for me to do at a particular position at, at a particular time at a particular situation so that i guess uh, you know what is the right thing to do so i guess this whole book this how it begins i guess that whole book teaches you you know your dharma as to how you should act in a righteous manner and i also wanted to add that um to to what alpana said uh, in the beginning 
you have to have belief and you have to have faith that shraddha is so important to to really um get into instead of just dissecting or analyzing but that real shraddha the the bhakti needs to be there to even go steer from wrong to to you know right path so um somebody can correct me but in the mahabharata you know i think somewhere some lecture i was listening maybe it was sarvapriyananda ji but he was saying that duryodhana knew very well what is right and wrong right yeah. he knew but he he at one point in my lecture i um, heard that he said that you know i i know what is right but i cannot make myself do it uh, and i know what is wrong but i cannot stop myself from doing it so th- that was very interesting to me that sometimes we know what is dharma and what is adharma still we are on the wrong path you know so you have to have the right mind and the willingness to change when you know that you know you know what's right and what's wrong well said well said sitra i saw you raise your hand uh yeah i have some uh, basic basic questions i'm sorry <laughs> maybe i might slow you guys down um <clears throat> so we're talking about uh, the mind being dhrudrashtra and the ego being duryodhana right and the ego is basically uh, leading the mind right so the ego is dominating and it's not letting the mind uh, take the right decision supposedly uh, but at the same time uh, it is the mind that actually finally so we are all using our minds now to kind of figure out what is right and what is wrong and, you know although i i strongly believe there is no right or wrong it's all it's all a perspective so what's right for me could be wrong for someone else so uh, isn't it kind of um, so i'm wondering uh, if the mind is blind then is this the process that we are doing where we opening up the mind i mean this process of reading the gita uh, <laughs> a quick question yes yes i, I see some it's nodding okay the short answer is yes <laughs> <laughs> okay thank you summed it up beautifully <laughs> <laughs> and the second thing also um isn't it the same ego also that actually helps us grow because if i do not want to grow this i is my ego um so i think both have their positives and negatives the mind and the ego and that i it just i don't know i think someone was saying that it has to you have to have faith and there has to be a guru kripa for us to actually uh, use this in the right manner supposedly right okay thank you uh, that's all i wanted to know because i was getting confused there were too many words going on so thank you i don't know why i remind myself of this story and it's it's an interesting story of uh, a snake and a rat a snake gets uh, trapped in a basket right and um he she or he loses all its confidence to um thinking that he or she won't be able to get out at all so um then a rat is outside that basket and rat thinks that i could find something in that basket i want to go and see right at that moment of time that thinks it's the right thing to go and see what's in the basket she could she or he could find something so she makes a hole gets into the basket 
So there is a snake in the basket wanting to go out. Now what snake got is the rat. She eats off the rat, and, right? And then she also gets out of the basket from that hole. So whatever I think, so as Vidya pointed out, for someone, right, what they think right may be wrong for someone else. So you never know how life plays out. I don't know why I got reminded of this story, but <laughs> I just wanted to let you guys know, that's all. No, very nice story. I think it, it, we probably will have to dive deeper into that at a later point of time in, in another context. I'm, I'm sure that this story will come up. I see, Sri, you raised your hand. Yeah, I just had a comment or uh, just follow up with what Ranjini had mentioned. I also heard the same uh, story that Duryodhana, that it's not that he did not know what is right or wrong. He knew what's right or wrong, but he just couldn't act. So something was pulling him. So I was wondering, I know the concept of vasanas is also discussed in the Gita, right? So is it his vasana that is holding him back, that is preventing him from doing what's right and following the evil way? Yeah, I think, you know, probably uh, the way that I would think about it is, and I think all of us, especially people who are, who have, who are, let's say, a medical profession degree, right? They all know that drinking and smoking is bad, but how difficult it is for them to get away from that. What, yeah, yeah, maybe his uh, vasana was like, uh, uh, how we say it, already always way of listening, right? So when we have this already always way of listening, the same thing that my, uh, you know, from the, the, the Rasra's perspective, Duryodhana is the best and he would conquer. So he was just thinking of that all the time and not opening his mind. I, that's how I can. You know, also, the sanskars. So, sanskars are the habits that are formed by doing previous actions. So, it's very hard to break free from the from the habits. I mean, it's it's just as Rajesh was saying. If we want to change anything in ourselves, it's just so hard to change because of the habit that has formed. But it can be changed over a period of time. So that's the. Uh, we will get the answer to this actually later on third chapter. Uh, we'll cover it. So about this uh, because it's the same question that Arjun asks. Yeah. So Chitra, you, you wanted to say something maybe after that we have to segue into another another part of what we no go ahead. Go ahead. After uh, um, no I just thought I mean looking at uh, taking my example it's an easy way to do something you know going the other way is much harder. So swimming against the current is much harder than swimming with the current. And that's why it's easier for Duryodhana to do what he wants to do because it's easy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Now, now let's, if, if we just kind of move forward, right, from Shloka 1 to 29th Shloka, right? And I think I'm, I'm pretty sure that you must have read through at least the description of how the battlefield was looking like and all that. I guess that that's setting the context, right? You know, context is very important. You know, I remember uh, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a small story that I want to tell you, you know, uh, a guy meets uh, a stranger uh, girl and uh, he can't ask any question to that girl right you know for example you know a very personal question do you want to have children it's it's not something that you cannot you can ask a stranger but if the context is there especially let's say in the context of let's say arranged marriages it's very you can obviously ask that question it's a relevant question to ask you know it's the most important question and by the way that ha that's what happened to me so i'm just <laughs> narrating that so <laughs> so context is there so i think uh, in the whole chapter from 1 to 29 uh, you know i it, 
the Gita is creating the context for us. And then further going into the context, this context was the external context of how the battlefield is looking, looking at the situation, the, uh, the challenges, what they're going to immediately face, right, at that point of time. But then the 29th sloka and the 30th sloka delves into the challenges, what's going on in Arjuna's mind. Maybe we should just segue into that and kind of, you know, talk about, you know, the external situation is there and now what's happening in, a, in, a, in his mind. So anybody can start off from there. Krishna, you. Um, very quick thing. So it's like, think of this as like the previously on Bhagavad Gita. So the 2 through uh, 29, there are some really good literary insights as well in this thing. So if you don't mind, I'll take like a couple of minutes. I wrote down some notes on that. So one, like, uh, Vedavyasa does not waste a single syllable in this thing, right? So he beautifully sets up, even if you think of it as like, a story, the way the emotions going through. So Shlokas 4 through 6, uh, when he says, look at the other army, he mentions about 12 to 15 people in the Pandava army. And then he says, oh, no, no, let us look at my army. And he mentions only seven people by name. So that's like one very nice contrast. Normally, you would want your army to be the bigger, positively projected one, right? So that shows one weakness. Second thing is when he realizes his mistake, then he calls Drona as, uh, Bhavan and then Bhishmacharya. So normally, uh, he, you want to say the eldest person first. So he should have said our army consists of Bhishma and then you and so on. But because he realized he has made this mistake of telling too many people on the other side, he wants to now placate Dronacharya. So he says, Bhavan, you are first in our army and then there is Bhishmacharya and then so on, right? And then in the next shloka, he says, Madhartya Jivitaha. So he says, all these people you have all assembled to give life for me. So he's already assumed you have all come here to sacrifice for me, whereas uh, Bhishma, Drona, Karna, they are all coming there only for each of their own dharma. So that again shows his uh, very arrogant nature that you're all coming here only for me, right? And then there is one beautiful Sanskrit play in the shloka number 10. Uh, he says, Aparyaptam and Paryaptam. Uh, the Sanskrit word uh, Paryaptam means uh, sufficient and limited, and Aparyaptam negates it. So if you take it as sufficient, it becomes insufficient, a negative meaning. But if you take it as limited, then it becomes a positive meaning, unlimited. So again, like Vedavyasa's beautiful play saying, in one way you can say he's thinking our army guided by Bhishma is unlimited and theirs by Bhima is limited. Or you could say it is just like psychological feeling, oh, we are actually insufficient, but they are sufficient by Bhima. So that's like one more thing. And then coming out of all this, uh, when Sanjaya... So now Bhishma says this fellow is continuously blabbering on and uh, he's not stopping. So let me rescue him and then he blows the conch, which is like firing the first shot equivalent thing, right? Like what Swami C says. Uh, at that point, like uh, the way Sanjaya describes, so this is where like the artistic play comes to. Uh, he describes, oh, there was like a lot of noise. There were kettle drums, there were conches. Everybody just made terrific noise. And he describes it that way about the Kaurava army. But when he comes to the Pandava army, he says, Divyo Shankar Pradakte, something like he's like this divine conscious were being blown. And he describes it in a very nice way that they are more organized and righteousness is on their side. And then one last thing, if you note, like, I know like the shlokas are like almost like watching paint dry, but the Swami sees interpretation is really beautiful there. Um, he says the shloka, the conch name for every individual Pandava, right? And if you notice uh, the, the conches for Yudhishthira, Nakula, and Shahadeva, uh, it is 
Ananta Vijaya, Shugosha, and Mani Pushpaka. So the, the prognostication of the war is already foretold. Ananta Vijaya means unending victories. Shugosha means beautiful, uh, loud chantings of good, good music, right? And Mani Pushpaka is garland of lovers. So he's already saying this is the end of the war. And that is like all hidden in this one shloka by that conch name, which we, if we normally read without Swami C's interpretation, we'll think, why is he just like, it's like a telephone directory listing 10 names. Uh, but that is the hidden meaning uh, behind that. So yeah, please definitely read those shlokas. And also uh, Swami C's, uh, he has like a book on every single chapter, there's a book. And in that he goes into all this. This is like, none of it is my original thought. Uh, everything is from Swami C's book. Uh, so in that he has like individual explanations of all this and how he builds up this beautiful tension Duryodhana's mindset and then Sanjaya's interpretation literally begging Dhritarashtra, please stop this. Like I'm telling you and I'm like either his direct way or Vyasa's indirect way of putting it and then saying uh, here is where the situation is. And then of course uh, Arjuna starts blabbering after chapter like Shloka 16 or something. So thank you. And, and Krishna, sorry if I may come in. That's why I was saying that it was so set up by the writer that, you know, he has, he has used these things to just make one side look better. And I was noticing all this, that each conch has a name, each everything has a name. So I know I'm being a little sacrilegious here, but that's how I was reading it. I said, okay, the setup itself is so biased in a way that Duryodhana has no chance. <laughs> Krishna, you beautifully explained that. I just wanted to add one thing, or it's more of a question, that why did Duryodhan go to Dronacharya and not to Bhishma? There are enough... No, because I thought... Yeah, because I thought... So I, I was actually reading that, and I think it was because he's the supreme leader. He's the commander-in-chief. So he's the counterpart of Arjuna. And uh, because... That was Bhishma. That was Bhishma, actually. Bhishma, Bhishma was, was the commander-in-chief. Commander yeah. oh, in the book, it says no, no, Bhishma but, is but considered book, as a defender. defender. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I was thinking that because uh, Dronacharya is the commander-in-chief, that's why he's going to him because Bhishma is the defender, which was yeah. confusing to I me also. But I yeah. understood the same way as VP because Dro uh, Dronacharya called the shots. And uh, Bhishma, no, no, Bhishma, Bhishma was actually the Senapati. And the reason no. he didn't go to Bhishma was because Bhishma's loyalty was very clear. And everybody knows if he's loyal to the throne, he will play for Duryodhana. But Dronacharya was a little iffy case for him because his favorite students were on the other side. Yeah. So that's why he goes to Dronacharya and also to provoke him, to remind him his enmity with Drupad. So there's an interesting story because they went to the same Gurukul to Bharadwaj Rishi's Gurukul and Dronacharya is Bharadwaj Rishi's son. And there they were really good friends. But later in life when Dronacharya gets married and he's very, he was quite poor. So his wife says, why don't you go to Drupad? He is a king and he can definitely give you something. And he goes to Drupad and says, hey friend, you know, if you can give me something. And Drupad get, being a little bit arrogant said, we can't be friends. You are a poor you know, uh, Brahman and I am a king. So, so, so then actually that's the reason Dronacharya comes to Hastinapur to teach um, and the, uh, the Pandavas and the Kauravas. And in Guru Dakshina, he asked them to go and conquer Drupad and bring him to him. And that is when, you know, his kingdom was divided. So he let go Drupad with half his kingdom and half of the kingdom then belonged to 
Dronacharya. But Drupad was no less. He did Yagna. He created a son, Drishtadyumna, who is actually to kill Dronacharya. But he sends the son to Dronacharya to learn archery. And Dronacharya was also, you know, that way he was very good. He knew this guy is born to kill me, but yet teaches him archery. And that's, so he just wanted to remind him that, you know, Drishtadyum is there, Senapati, and you have to fight against him. He's there to kill you. So keep all your guards on and just to, just to provoke him. So that was an interesting piece as well in one of the commentaries again. And Alpana, go back to the story, what Lakshmi was saying, right? You know, what you said yeah. just now reflects that story very well because it's rats, it's rats very nature to go and make a hole and go inside. And it's a snake's nature to eat a rat and to escape yeah. out of that hole. Basically, what they were trying to do is their Dronacharya was trying to do what is natural to him, which is to teach. It doesn't matter who it is. Correct. Absolutely. I like the way, um, uh, you know, before I come to that, Krishna, I know your summary was great. You know, I, I started wondering whether I was reading the same book as you read, actually. So. <laughs> Sorry, anyway. I was cheating from reading another book, not in the syllabus. <laughs> Krishna, we cannot, we cannot meet, uh, you know, your standards, 200 books yeah. a year. <laughs> <laughs> no, no I, you know, I like the way how uh, Swamiji completely demolishes, you know, uh, the the pitiness that um, you know Arjuna tries to um, uh, express, you know, or at least Sanjaya says. That, I mean, Sanjaya was trying to put that as pity, but then I think you know, uh, in the book, at least this book, Swami uh, Simyananda, you know, he completely uh, negates that. I mean, it is not pity. If it was pity, you know, you'd have. Uh, the, it is not an honest uh, emotion, and you know, if he, if he were, if the feelings were honest, he would have done something different uh, earlier itself. You know, and that's very. True, actually. I mean, you can't just uh, talk about it, you know, just when it is about to begin. So I like the para in you know, page 31. You know, uh, Sakuba, you might want to read out some parts of it because I'm using a Kindle and when you say page 31, it doesn't translate into a location for me. You know? <laughs> no, no. Okay, so let me read, you know. Um, uh, you know, so, so this is after 26 and 27. So... Um, he says, you know, whatever might be, might have been the cause, the sight brought into his mind a flood of pity and compassion. Evidently, this was not an honest opinion, uh, an honest emotion. Had it been honest, had his pity and compassion been Buddha-like, natural and instinctive, he would have, even long before the war, behaved quite differently. This emotion, which, is, which now Sanjaya glorifies as pity in Arjuna, uh, is a misnomer. In the human heart, there is always a great tendency to glorify one's own weaknesses with some convenient angelic name and divine pose. Thus, a rich man's vanity is, named, is misnamed as charity uh, when he builds a temple in his own name with the secret aim of immortalizing himself. Here also we find the feeling of desperation that came in Arjuna's mind Due to the incomplete, due, sorry, due to the complete shattering of his mental equilibrium, uh, which has been misnamed and glorified as pity. Got it. I, I figured it out. Figured it out where it is. Thank you for that. That's beautiful, right? It talks about how we behave and we justify ourselves. Yeah. I think uh, uh, jokes jokes aside, you know, I think uh, all of us, if we go talk to our spouses, we will we will know where we justify ourselves the most. <laughs> 
so here i would like to ask a question like you know we see this loss of mental equilibrium for arjuna but that might be the case with all the people in the um, kauravas also like dronacharya and bhishma because they were fighting with their own cousins or favorite disciples so lack of mental equilibrium might be there in both the sides except for maybe a few like drona uh, duryodhan and few others so i mean so i mean everybody i think that they were fighting with lot of mental conflicts within themselves i would think so you're right um uh can i add there so uh, so i mean everybody was doing their dharma everybody was doing their dharma like what is their duty to serve whoever was their master or you know whatever kingdom they belong to or whichever you know uh, group they belong to and they just carried out their duties so it's basically everybody was carrying out their duties in this war irrespective of their emotions or you know whatever it, i mean their uh, thoughts yeah. and feelings or whatever they like uh, what they liked or likes or dislikes i th- i think that's an interesting point um if i may add here i w- um my question is yes uh, you know in this case arjuna had that um question but did others really go through the same right so for instance i feel bishma and drona and i think they were very clear they didn't have the conflict they knew they had to uh, they knew what they had to do so there was no conflict even though they were on the uh, uh, quote and quote uh, the wrong side but it was their dharma that it was very clear there was no conflict in their minds there was conflict in arjuna's mind uh, that was because of the delusion um but then um i i, I believe they may not have had that conflict but i, I again i not read the back stories much so i would appreciate uh, others can pitch in yeah so what i understand is like they were very clear on their dharma and their line of duty you know this is my duty to act you know this is for me what is right to do to fight against the pandavas irrespective of whatever the reasons may be so they were just mere you know i mean just people who were performing the duties respective duties uh, it's, it's like i mean there's war between two countries and one may be right from one perspective other is right from their perspective and uh, people just do their duties i guess sonali the great point sonali and i think i think you know that that the, the entire mahabharat when we uh, sorry uh, geeta when we read it it will talk about like what krishna was saying right dharma the duties it talks about it entirely the whole thing so what i would suggest is we will park that because we will tell that that's the only topic of this particular whole geeta that will go on because at the end of the day what we will have to do it is we will have to learn from this and figure out what is our duty what is our dharma that we will have to do so we'll park that part of the question for you know for all the year to come through and we will be learning that particular thing uh, that thing only so why don't uh, we just I, move I, on I, to why don't we just move on to the uh, what has been happening in arjuna's mind the shloka 29 and 30th that we read because i think you know it's it's important for us to mm-hmm. mull over it because we have to understand you know um, 
what's been happening when he sees something external, what has been happening to him internally and how does it reflect? I just wanted to um, make one point here, you know, in response to what Sonali was saying, that uh, the very fact that, you know, the, the Bhishma and Drona and others were so confident that their dharma was, you know, they, they knew their duty, they were doing it. Um, I think, and, and Arjun, we see that he has all these doubts and conflicts in his mind. Um, it goes to show that, you know, they were not, they were not really questioning what they were doing. Whereas Arjun, as we start to see, you know, he starts questioning, is he doing this and, you know, what, uh, is it right, is it not right? And I think that that is, to me, that is the difference between, you know, um, figuring out if you're doing something right or wanting to figure out if you're doing something right versus whatever I'm doing is the right thing and I know it, you know, that, that overconfidence. Yeah, you're right. It's like, you know, the masses have been told to do certain thing and they just act on it, you know, irrespective of knowing maybe the, what the whole or the bigger picture is. This just reminds me one small, I mean, one example like pre-independence, you know, we would have the Indian, the Indian people working for the British army and working against, uh, fighting against Indians, like maybe the, you know, uh, like uh, with Shubhash Bose uh, uh, army. So the Indians in the British were fighting for British army against the Indians led by Shubhash Bose. I forget the name of the army that, uh, you know, led by Shubhash Bose. So, you know, so, I mean, and once the Indians in the British army realized that what they were doing was wrong, so that's when the mutiny started. I mean, the conflict started and the British realized if they cannot hold the army in India, uh, in the Indians in the British army, there is no way they can, you know, govern the country. So they left, I mean, India, because that's when the conflict started. Just an example, you know, I thought of, came to my mind. I mean, uh, we see that uh, in even, you know, uh, in say the Nazi Germany, right? There were all these people that were doing all these horrible things to other people. You know, we always say Hitler was the bad guy, but then there were all these other people who were just not thinking for themselves or, you know, making choice. I don't know if they had the ability to make choices, but, you know, clearly not making good choices. And I, I think that- maybe question, like you said, questioning, you know, but, questioning but again, the, what they're doing. But, but again, they were following right, the right. orders. What they, were, they were following the orders, but if they thought that we are all, there's no division, then this wouldn't have happened. I don't know. No, I mean, I think in terms like, of Gita. You know, in in terms of Gita. Like when we start to see uh, Arjun's, you know, his mental anguish, he, you know, there's clearly a different way of thinking about the same situation. And not everybody is thinking that way, you know? So there's something to be said about this individual who is thinking that, oh my gosh, what am I doing? Is it the right thing or not the right thing? At, at least questioning it and trying to 
understand for himself, like, why am I doing this? And that, that introspection, I think, is important. And we don't see that introspection with Duryodhan or with Dronacharya or, you know, others on the Kaurava side, or at so, least they don't talk about it, right? So that's maybe, you know, happening a lot of times in the corporate sector also, like your boss comes and tells you to do something which is not right, or maybe something wrong. And still, you know, it is not right. I should not do it, but still you do it, you know, just because it's your duty, because it's the order from your boss. And I, I'm sure like many, many of us might have gone through such situation. But I, I think, you know, when we talk about duty, we have to really define what duty means, right? So is duty following orders? I, I'm not sure that that's what duty means. I think the duty is also to consider for yourself, what am I doing? Is it right or wrong? I feel like right. we have so to, realize, to realize what, what you're doing is wrong or, you know, suppose your boss comes and tells you to do certain things in a certain way and you feel that it is not right, right way to do. Okay, one thing is you either you follow what your boss says irrespective of knowing that what you're doing is not right. The second, the second thing is you quit if you don't want to do it. You know? So I, I feel you like, protest, you know... You protest in, and you still do it. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I feel like, you know, sometimes we don't... Um, don't engage in this introspection because we don't want to uh, have these feelings, the feelings that they describe, like what Arjun describes that he's going through. You don't want to get into that. You know, it's easier to say, uh, yeah, I thought about it for two seconds and what I'm doing is the right thing. You know, whereas in engaging these feelings and really trying to, you know, understand, is it right or not? Sometimes it takes a little more, you know, out of you and not it's not a pleasant feeling like when we read these two shlokas right it's not a pleasant feeling for arjuna to engage in those those uh, thoughts is it because arjuna ignorance led to his curiosity i, I don't know so whereas bhishma and whoever you're talking about they they were not um they they knew exactly what to do and there, there's no ignorance there. Is it, is it that? Actually, then, so Arjuna that's why they were not curious or they had no questions. Actually, when Arjuna didn't have it till he asked Krishna to put the chariot in between the two armies, he actually says with mm -hmm. almost a little bit of arrogance, let me see who I have to fight with. You know, with mm -hmm. the, he was very confident. It was Krishna who strategically places the chariot in front of Bhishma and Dron because what he probably perceived was in the somewhere in the middle of the war or later on he will suddenly be overcome with you know the, there are three reasons one is filled with when you are trying to kill your own uh, either family or friend members one is you feel guilty that you're trying to kill your own this thing. The second is um, you're filled with grief that once you have killed somebody, right? And then the third one is you're killing. So that, that pop itself. So at some point in time, because it's going to be such a 
intense war he will be filled with that so he places in front of uh, bhishma and dron because he was closest to them if he had put the chariot in front of duryodhan out of revenge he would have started the war immediately even before bhishma blowing the conch so it was i think impact of where that chariot was placed that got him thinking into oh my god what am i going to do which may have happened early, otherwise later that's exactly the question yeah. about awesome money. yeah why do these questions come up in other people's minds so are you saying if so dronacharya or apishma would have gotten into this conflict somewhere down the line if they <laughs> say arjuna or pandavas um i look at bhishma was enlightened he had no relation to what the work is so i don't think he was ever conflicted with anything dronacharya was when yudhishthira told him your son is dead he he melt down because of the same thing right he did he lost his life because of that so it's not that and that's what i was trying to explain that maybe arjuna initially may not have gotten into these feelings but it was because he was his chariot was placed there it actually pre almost like preempted you know these these feelings others also i think during the war karna when he came to know that these are his brothers he couldn't fight the way he would have otherwise fought right so all of these things i, I so i think ali is absolutely right others would either at that point in time or later in the war they will go through these feelings but it is how you know in this particular one because krishna probably knew that arjun will lose all his you know composer etc um he did make it happen right in the yeah beginning. i think that is why <clears throat> i think uh, the lesson for me is that you know you have to put yourself in that situation prior to you know taking the action right so you have to put yourself in that situation and think it through how you know what what all is at risk for me and how i feel about that risk and is it worth is that risk worth taking um right so that's, that's what i'm think, yeah learning from this is and what rajesh says uh, you know you need to decide okay how many people will benefit from this particular act if even if it doesn't appear to be the right act but it is benefiting you know the climate change etc at a completely global level then right. go ahead do it Yeah. Actually, uh, Alpana, what you were saying about you know where Krishna places the chariot and uh, what Manu you were saying sometime back about you know we have to know our duties and all that. I feel uh, the insight that that I kind of you know get is that you know I think each one of us is unique and each one of us is given a particular life situation by that entity who knows what do we need. For Arjuna, you know, it was that maybe you know dramatized saying that okay. he drove the chariot put them in front of uh, bishma and uh, uh, drona and then created the situation maybe you know that's all dramatization but in our if you put that back into our own life each one of us in a particular situation today you know some conflict or the other that we might have you know the point is if we consider that as a conflict then i think there's a problem but if we start thinking to to manu to your point saying okay why is this coming to me and why is it coming only to me at this point of time then i think the key opens up the lock for us to start inquiry true true very well rajesh to take a segue from you and alpana uh, i what i read uh, it was very strategic on part of shri krishna to 
place the chariot where he actually placed it and uh, we can relate it to what happens in some of our lives also so uh, uh, i don't know how much it is true but uh, they say that when mahabharata was fought uh, arjuna was 84 years old and shri krishna was somewhere around 87 or 86 and uh, they were friends so uh, shri krishna was watching that uh, arjuna is basically always action oriented lot of uh, rajogun there and there was no talk about uh, tatva and what is the purpose of life so he at this stage he thought uh, it is enough and now he should have the relevant questions come into his mind so that's why instead of driving the chariot in front of duryodhan and dushashan and all he took the chariot and placed it in front of arjuna's loved ones so to to basically start that conflict in his mind and bring in all the relevant questions and that builds up the basically the stage for what is coming in all the teachings so and to add to what you said um, <clears throat> ashish and uh, alpana it's like when he put the chariot in that particular place um, the uh, vyasa uses the word for krishna as uh, rishikesha so it's it's and uh, swami chinyananda has clearly said like you can say you know rishikesha as you know less um, uh, those who have small hair or short hair but the other part of it is you know how he is bringing back the the uh, guna of being um, satvik right to come and see like just not action but when you come back to see what is in life for you to self realize so he uses a very nice word in different different shlokas of rishikesha or madhava or govinda depicting you know the the reason why he is using that so i i need to go deeper but i thought swami chinnamananda brought it very nicely in that shloka vivek you were saying something yeah so i mean i i was actually thinking of you know this this point of how old were these people um you know there's uh, first of all in terms of number of people as well the scale uh, so somebody has written i think the uh, the koravas were about um, about 1.6 million army and and uh, and pandavas were about 800000 so about half so totally about 2.5 million uh, people which in today's context given the population at that time in 5000 years back in today's context that's uh, two two armies totaling 500 million people facing off each other um and and uh, the the modern context is that for the majority of life till about 1800 like you know 200 years back the average life expectancy of human beings was around 25 years so to have uh, i i find it a bit uh, there's a dissonance over here in terms of i mean the scale of what mahabharat was was huge uh it was basically you know 
all the armies of Europe, US, China, and India fighting each other. Yes. Uh, in 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 comparison, but uh, and and the age thing is relevant for me because uh, uh, you know how how much wisdom can one cram into? 20, I mean, today's twenty five year olds are barely you know they can buy, barely tie their shoelaces. Uh, <laughs> And and here there are people leading armies of uh, million people plus million soldiers plus. So so the the whole image doesn't fit compared to what how we live today. I mean, just looking at the story, and of course, it's a story. Um, so what I have read is uh, actually most of the men were wiped out in this war, and it was not just a war with India. There were people from all over the world. So Kandahar and all. I mean, th those names are dropped. So it was a global war and almost the entire male population was wiped out. So we started almost literally again. And that's why the entire science was lost. You know, the science of all the, um, you know, the kind of weapons and the, and the transportation system that were there at that point in time. Also, if you look at, you know, how it is described in Puranas at least, so the average lifetime during Satyug is 1000 years. And it actually reduces till this Mahabharat happens. And then it becomes really low because of maybe the radiations, etc. who knows why. But the, but the life expectancy actually went very, very low after the Mahabharat war. And now it is back to increasing again. So that's why 85 years is actually pretty, you know, that is the time when the average age was about, I think, uh, Bhishma was about 120 years or something when this war was fought. Um, and, uh, you know, even one level above, Balik was of their father level. But, I, I mean, if I, uh, Alpna, if I may challenge that yeah. for a sec, uh, yeah. is, is, you know, uh, the concepts of time, this is another little piece that I've yeah. been looking at. Yeah. Uh, in, again, modern modern ways of telling time chronologically one after the other day after day hour after hour minute yeah. after minute yeah. uh, started sometime in four or five uh, bc right um, yeah. prior to that uh, and again this is what i've read from a, a uh, let's say a peer-reviewed report if you will or, or paper before that, people used to refer to time in terms of seasons, in terms of, uh, so, so the concept of year was not particularly relevant. You're right. So could it be, Understood. yeah, it could be possible that maybe one season was one year. <laughs> yeah, I mean, 80, 85, 85 seasons is quite different from, and, and they would refer to in, in Itihas, first of all, it was, you know, there was no print, printing press, so it was hand-me-down information yeah but uh, um, i had forwarded that video right where it picks up because each of these they actually look at some uh planet some cosmic yeah, event right? yeah so if yeah. you pick it up so even there if you see through that they were measuring time but yeah i think uh, there's no way to prove or disprove I, I i think uh, 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 if you go back right in our uh, scriptures they talked about 100 years and they said first 25 years you have to do this and the next you have to do this so i'm not i mean i'm just assuming that uh, even if it was uh, in terms of the uh, let's say seasons 
uh, it seemed a too short a period to be able to you know marry at the age of uh, i mean at that sort of what we will call if you divided by four let's say four seasons per year it'll be very early age to get married for example well i mean but marriages used to be fixed very early on for sure yeah um, during our grandparents time marriage you had child marriages well you have child marriages today but i mean the, the thing is the point is they used to fix up uh, marriages between children they they weren't husband and wife until they were able to produce offspring of their own But, so if you think were... about it right they, the the scriptures talks talks about 100 years right so if you divide by that number of seasons then by sort of that logic it will be 25 years of basically our year these days and and yeah. then so it's it's very difficult to figure out that you could have offsprings at that uh, you know i mean basically at 12 and a half or somewhere about so or not even 12 and, and a half 6 and a half people have 18 and, and... years of offsprings and this is this is and, a good anyway yeah. i'm getting off topic so i'll i'll shut up now no 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 it, it, i mean i i will <laughs> i went off but krishna this is a, this is something for your uh, your skills i guess to to take back and see you know what was what was how did people actually record time and what was the association with time we had big time right i mean we had yugas and kalpas which are in terms of years so so there was there were more units of time at that time used than now we used the minimum as one second they used to use time to even you know i don't have it handy and i don't remember that but which was really much much minuter than uh, a second so the time i think they were using something but obviously not the the year system that we use now ajay ajay or vp rajesh shared that you know the time right from the blinking of an eye all the way yeah. to the aliens in the in the group so maybe if they can yeah, ajay ajay had shared that yeah yeah one of you can repost it it'll be good for the for the, he, for the other people who have come even in. if we assume that this, this is all a story i think the first chapter sets a very good context for what is coming in because uh, i see there are three uh, types of attachments uh, mentioned in this chapter uh, attachments or uh, so uh, dhritarashtra had that uh, tamoguni attachment uh, duryodhana for what we might uh, say uh, he he is a able uh, leader he is weighing in the forces on both the sides actually on his side and on uh, pandava's side so he is doing the right thing and he is all seeped in rajogun he wants to win the war uh, so that that's his aim so it's all uh, his uh, nature is attached in the rajogun and uh, arjuna although he was a warrior uh, he also has a lot of rajogun but when uh, krishna places the chariot in between his loved ones he gets seeped in how can i kill my own so he he is getting into the satvagun kind of attachment so in a way it can also be interpreted as okay i won't kill mine but bring yours i'll kill them readily that's well said i think uh, you know uh, we will probably will have to uh, pause here at this point of time i know it's been a tumultuous discussion i would say you know using the same word what uh, they use tumulo bhavat in in the in the book so uh, 